Iran puts three more of its female journalists on trial for security crimes, while two others tried on similar charges in May await their fate. The Committee to Protect Journalists tells us why it thinks jailed reporters Nilafar Hamidi and Elahe Mohammadi are being kept in the dark. Usually the regime likes to keep them in that limbo situation and extend their imprisonment, hoping that at some point they will be forgotten. Plus, Iran and Western powers held a series of meetings in recent weeks. We asked the International Crisis Group if those talks were enough to ease long-running tensions. There's the big picture of deteriorating relations, and that doesn't preclude ongoing diplomatic contacts. And why China is being more careful about importing oil from Iran, one of its key suppliers. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Three female Iranian journalists went on trial at a Tehran revolutionary court on Monday on charges of spreading anti-government propaganda. Iranian state-approved news site Etamad Online and the human rights activists in Iran group reported that the trial lasted four hours. The three women, Saide Shafie, Marinush Zareh Hanzaki, and Nasim Sultan Begi, had been arrested separately in January and February and were released on bail several weeks later. They were detained in relation to their coverage of various social issues in Iran. Two other female journalists, Nilafar Hamidi and Elahe Mohammadi, went on trial in May, charged with security crimes for their reporting about the death and funeral of Masa Amini. She was the Iranian Kurdish woman whom Tehran police arrested last September for allegedly violating a strict Islamic dress code in public. Her subsequent death in police custody triggered months of nationwide protests against Iran's Islamist rulers. Yagane Rezaian is a Middle East researcher for the Committee to Protect Journalists. She told me in a June 28th phone call that the families and lawyers of Hamadi and Mohammadi had received no updates about their status from Iranian authorities weeks after their trials began. It seems as if the regime is trying to keep them in a limbo situation. And one speculation about that, which has been reoccurring in that system, is that once a political prisoner becomes very high profile, usually the regime likes to keep them in that limbo situation and extend their imprisonment hoping that at some point they will be forgotten in the world. And once their name is not out there anymore, regime in a very face-saving way can let them out or give them a sham trial and a forced sentence and again, like quietly let them serve a little bit of their sentence and again, deal with them like that. But the truth is that in these cases particularly these two female journalists. They are innocent. They didn't do anything wrong except reporting the truth and and informing the society and not just the domestic society, but also the international community. And they are just paying the price for doing their job truthfully. And the world is not going to forget about them. The longer they stay 
in that dungeon, the more their names will be spread out. Mm -hmm. Well, can I ask, how much awareness do you think Iranian officials have about the big network of international support that uh, these two women have? Are you aware that messages from CPJ and other rights activists and rights groups are getting through to uh, Tehran? Absolutely, because the regime has an expansive cyber army, and their first and foremost job is monitoring any news about the country that is out in the international world. So they know exactly what awards these women have been nominated for, what organization is issuing statement in their support. Any movement, they are monitoring, I promise you, based on personal experience, but also from our work with previous cases, we know for sure that the regime is monitoring how the world is reacting. What kind of impact do you think the international support for Elahi Mohammadi and Nilofar Hamadi is having on uh, the Iranian government? I mean, as you're saying, they're aware of this support, but do you think it has the potential to result in any change to their treatment? Yes, the support has already resulted in the fact that they dropped the charges of espionage, which could have been punishable by execution. The fact that they realize that, first of all, they do not have any supporting documents for proving such a farce charge. Uh, And also the fact that they don't know how to deal with the case. One of the reasons that often political cases get extended is, in fact, because the regime themselves are not sure about how to deal with the case. Um, If they were dual citizens, they were looking to either ask for money or prisoner swap. These two women are just two local journalists who were working for state-run media. So technically, they went through all kinds of background check within the system. So they can't say they are spies. They are not. How do you see the Iranian government dealing with its own media, its own state-approved journalists going forward, you know, based on how it's treated these two women and other journalists who have also been detained since the protests began last September? So the truth is that the media scene in Iran has been terrible since this regime came to power. And they have, in many, many cases throughout the years, treated a media and domestic journalists in particular very brutally and very harshly. And that's why so many journalists are immigrating and going to self-imposed exiles because they know But as long as they are inside the country, they won't be able to do their job freely and safely. And those who decide to stay know that they will be silenced by arrest and long-term detention and harsh sentences. Obviously, 
very silently and slowly killing the traditional journalism is what the regime is looking for because they would love to see more and more people leave this profession and those who think other than the regime, those who do not support the regime, go silent and go do other things. So this is not a new phenomenon, but it, with all the tactics and the ways that the regime is treating journalists, it's been speed up. Yes, it is certainly a disturbing trend. Yagane Rizayan, Middle East and North Africa Senior Researcher for the Committee to Protect Journalists, speaking to us from here in Washington, D.C. I appreciate you being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you so much for having me. Iran has enjoyed a series of diplomatic achievements in recent weeks related to its goal of reducing its regional and international isolation. Four Gulf Arab states hosted visits by the Iranian foreign minister, while a fifth, Saudi Arabia, allowed the Iranian embassy in Riyadh to reopen for the first time in seven years. Iran even engaged in some diplomacy with Western powers. Its chief nuclear negotiator, Ali Bagheri Khani, met officials of the European Union, Britain, France and Germany to discuss ways of de-escalating disputes related to Iran's nuclear program and its other activities. Those talks do not mean Iran's relations with the West are improving, as I heard from Nasan Rafati, an Iran analyst with the International Crisis Group. Well, there's the big picture of deteriorating relations, and that doesn't preclude ongoing diplomatic contacts. So uh, in terms of Iran's relations with the West, the nuclear talks broke down at the end of August, early September last year. And then that deadlock was further compounded by the absolute outrage in Europe and in the U.S. over two things that happened since then. One is obviously the Iranian government's uh, repression of nationwide protests that began in mid-September. And the other one is Iran's provision of drones to Russia, which have been uh, used in Ukraine. So those two things have, I think, quite significantly led to certainly Iran's relations with Europe being you know, considerably poorer than they've been at any point in years. And the negotiations over the JCPOA, for example, haven't picked up since then. Now, none of that is necessarily in contradiction with continued outreach between individual member states of the EU. So we know that the E3, you know, the Germans, the Brits and the French have met Iran's deputy foreign minister at least twice. The EU has been in contact with them and, and apparently the Americans have had some kind of indirect engagements. Now, a lot of that, I think, comes as much from preventing the situation from deteriorating further as it necessarily is in terms of reflecting that those relations are significantly on, on the uptick. We know that, for example, the E3 have certainly been conveying to Iran their concerns over the current level of Iran's nuclear enrichment, over its provision of military equipment to the Russians. And so it's as much kind of conveying concerns as it necessarily is kind of looking for diplomatic off-ramps into a relationship that's been getting worse since uh, mid-last year. Why do you think the European Union and the U.S. also appear to be continuing with a diplomatic approach to expressing concerns rather than perhaps escalating by focusing on pressure tactics like sanctions or talking about some kind of military deterrent? 
Well, to a certain extent, you've had an element of both, right? You've had multiple rounds of EU sanctions over the past couple of months come out, both over human rights concerns and over targeting individuals and entities related to Iran's UAV program and the the transfer of those drones. The U.S. has done the same. Um, The U.S. has also engaged over the course of this year, especially earlier this year, in a number of pretty significant military exercises, either bilaterally with the Israelis, for example, or in terms of regional war games with various allies. But I think that what you've also seen them is, and, and Secretary of State Blinken has talked about this as well, is that you know you have a, a deterrent element, but you also have an option to leave the diplomatic door open, and especially given where Iran's nuclear program is with, you know, enrichment at 60%, the International Atomic Energy Agency operating basically half blind in terms of its access to Iranian nuclear sites. You know, the margin for error is quite limited. So keeping the door open at least to preventing the situation from escalating further is, I think, one option that they're doing in tandem with certainly some sanctions, certainly some military saber rattling as well. Well, one key U.S. official who was involved in diplomacy with Iran over the past couple of years is the U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, Rob Malley. But as we heard last Thursday, he is suspended without pay over an investigation into alleged mishandling of classified information or documents. A lot of questions remain as to what exactly happened with him. But with Rob Malley sidelined for the time being, How do you think this could affect the Biden administration's Iran policy? Well, I think for the moment, it's more likely that whatever the outcome of that investigation, to see more continuity than than dramatic change, at least in the short to near term. I mean, bear in mind that the U.S. government has a lot of people that are engaged in Iran policy at a strategic level and at a much more tactical level as well. So, for example, uh, when it comes to threats against U.S. forces and allied forces in the region, the Department of Defense obviously plays a significant role. When it comes to the rolling out and implementation of sanctions. You have the U.S. Treasury Department, and then obviously you have the White House National Security Council, as well as the State Department, whether it's at the U.N., whether it's in D.C., whether it's uh, in the region. All of those are inputs that go into what becomes the envoy's front-facing approach on actually implementing that policy. So I think that for the moment, it's not likely you know, again, pending the outcome of any investigation, likely to kind of change the broad strokes of the U.S. approach. We were also talking a bit earlier about Iran's relationship with its Arab neighbors uh, seemingly improving. What is the latest uh, you can share with our audience about how Iran has been doing with its strategy of trying to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia Iran recently had its embassy in Riyadh reopen, although the Saudi embassy in Tehran has not opened yet. The Iranian foreign minister went to four Arab nations in the Gulf last month. So what can you share about how that strategy is progressing? Well, I think that within Iran, especially among the hardliners that that currently kind of uh, run the show, there's always been this vision that the West no longer plays the role that it may have once done, and so that Iran's kind of strategic focus should be on relations with major non-Western powers, including Russia and China, and also with its neighbors. Now, when you mention the Gulf, 
there's a lot of variation, right, in terms of how Iran's relations with various Gulf actors or various neighbors had been. So, for example, the Omanis, the Qataris have had, you know, fairly business-like relations with the Iranians. The UAE and the Saudis have had uh, more ups and downs in their relationship over the past few years. The Emiratis began to engage the Iranians more in 2019, and the Saudis, you know, over the past year have been engaging in talks with the Iranians first in Baghdad and, um, you know, ultimately leading to the normalization agreement reached in Beijing. So that process, again, seems to be moving ahead. I think I would put it as moving from a kind of adversarial to a de-escalatory footing, at least when it comes to Saudi Arabia. There's, there's still a long way to go in the process of, you know, moving towards warm bilateral relations. But what I think is happening in the first instance is minimizing areas of friction. And for the Iranians, having better relations with the Saudis, with the Iraqis, with the Emiratis kind of gives them certainly a bit of a political and diplomatic boost. And also, I think, in their view, kind of gives avenues to break out of the sanctions-related isolation that they face. Well, Nesan Rafati, senior Iran analyst at the International Crisis Group, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Nice to have you on Flashpoint Iran. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. U.S. advocacy group United Against Nuclear Iran, or Yuani, says Iran is using a fleet of at least 338 vessels with obscure ownerships to transport its crude oil and petroleum products in violation of U.S. sanctions. Yuani says many of these aging vessels, which are not part of Iran's official tanker fleet, are operating outside of Western oversight, making them a safety hazard. I spoke to Yuani's chief of staff, Claire Jungman, by phone on June 28th and asked whether Iran's top oil customer, China, is taking notice. Well, um, I'll start by saying thank you for having me on. I really appreciate being invited back. So over the last few months, we've seen an increase in detentions and inspections from China to vessels transporting Iranian oil. China has raised their scrutiny regarding port inspection when it comes to older tankers, majority of which are part of this ghost armada or dark fleet. Um, These tankers are typically, uh, you know, they have insufficient documentation, they've gone through safety lapses, and their ownership is hard to trace. Um, Ultimately, these tankers are pretty much a ticking time bomb, just waiting to cause an accident at any point. This month so far, we've seen 31 inspections of vessels that are included on Yuani's Iranian Ghost Armada list. Of these 31 inspections, 18 of these vessels have been detained for failing inspection checks. You were saying that China is stepping up its safety inspections of these kinds of ghost tankers uh, lately. But China is also the biggest importer of Iranian oil. So... Can you give us a sense of why China would be seemingly creating obstacles to buying oil from one of its biggest suppliers? Sure. So back in May, we saw a devastating explosion occur on board the aging oil tanker named Pablo. This tanker had been routinely involved in transporting Iranian oil um, and was not up to date on its safety inspections. Following that incident, we've seen an increase in detentions and inspections. And despite China 
doing these inspections and safety checks, they are still being released and China is still importing that oil. So while they've stepped up their inspections, they have not decreased their imports of Iranian oil. Is there any indication that these inspections of the Chinese are having any impact on what Iran is doing? I mean, if I were China, I'd want to see probably fewer unsafe tankers coming in with the Iranian oil. But, you know, is that actually happening? Um, No, so we're not seeing fewer. But, you know, if there was an accident that happened at a Chinese port with one of these aging tankers, China could ultimately be responsible for cleaning that mess up and paying for that mess. So it kind of benefits them to still do the inspections and make sure that the tankers are up to date on these safety checks as they're importing the Iranian oil. What about uh, the steps taken by the Biden administration to deal with this ghost tanker fleet? What can you say about that? Sadly, we've not seen any sanctions enforcement on tankers included in the Ghost Armada since, I believe, March of this year. Um, As a result, we've seen efforts on the Hill draw attention to increasing sanctions enforcement. For example, we've seen the SHIP Act, which is a new act that's been put out there, which looks to sanction illicit purchasers of Iranian oil and hold the regime's enablers accountable. If enacted, this would be an excellent step in cracking down on the Ghost Armada. Why is it that we haven't seen the Biden administration sanction specific uh, vessels that Yuani has identified as part of this ghost armada? Um, You know, I wonder that question very often as well. Um, I can't speak for the administration, but I can say that I assume there are negotiations taking place that, you know, might prevent the administration from proceeding with sanctions because they want to see if they can do some type of negotiation at the time. Well, I wanted to also ask you about another development related to Iranian actions at sea, and that is Iranian naval forces harassing or seizing vessels in and around the Strait of Hormuz. What are the latest cases that you've seen of this kind of behavior? Yeah, this has been a busy month. I mean, we've seen Iran testing suicide drones to use against commercial vessels in the Gulf. We've seen Iranian Navy boats harass vessels transiting the Strait of Hormuz. And these attacks also follow the seizure of two oil tankers from last month that remain detained off Bandar Abbas, Iran. What do you think is actually driving this Iranian behavior? Why do you think the Iranians are doing all these things to the vessels transiting through that area? Well, ultimately, Iran seeks to assert its influence and maintain a position of strength in the Persian Gulf region. Um, You know, often its behavior results in a tit-for-tat move due to its rivalries with other countries and tensions with the U.S. Additionally, you know, the Gulf of Oman and the Persian Gulf are critical maritime routes for a significant portion of the world's oil supply. Um, Iran's actions in the region may be driven by its desire, you know, to protect its economic interests, including its energy exports and the trade routes. What is the potential that these confrontations involving Iranian naval forces and merchant vessels and and even the navies and and the forces of other countries could lead to some kind of conflict? You know, we've already seen two vessels that have been detained, as I mentioned earlier. They're currently sitting off the coast of Bandar Abbas. There's crew members that are still on that vessel that haven't been able to get home to their families. And I assume that there are negotiations going on to try to release these vessels, these tankers. So, you know, sadly, this stuff happens, it seems to be monthly, every other month and could lead to more escalation in the conflict at any time. Do you have any forecast or prediction about 
how Iran is going to be uh, sort of behaving in terms of its naval policies in the future. Can you give us a sense of what you're looking for in terms of how Iran is deploying naval forces, uh, moving its resources around? What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned again earlier, we saw Iran test suicide drones earlier this month. The only reason they would test those drones would be to use against commercial vessels in the future. That's terrifying. That should be a huge warning flag to other vessels in the region, to countries in the region. Um, There needs to be action, I think, taken to deter this activity from Iran. Let's see if we have some kind of response from the international community to that. Claire Jungman, Chief of Staff at United Against Nuclear Iran, joining us on the line from New York. Great to have you back on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you so much for having me. That brings us to the end of this week's program. You can subscribe to more episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts. If you're using the Apple app, feel free to leave a review. I'm Michael Lippin. On behalf of the Flashpoint Iran team, thank you for listening. We'll have another show for you next week and hope you can join us then.